I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 45th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. As the PGA Tours FedEx Series prepares to tee it up at the historic Olympia Fields Country Club this week, we are about to stir up the echoes of days past. Olympia Fields Country Club considers itself the home of golf champions, and on this episode, we roll back time on the clock tower and relive the events that saved Olympia Fields and shaped a community, a golf club, and a master plan. To pay homage to two of the four courses that helped shape the history of our game in America. Before we turn back the clock, let me say a few words about our sponsor, Ryan Healthcare. Ryan Healthcare is a subsidiary of Ryan Companies U.S. Inc., dedicated solely to the development, design, and construction of medical buildings and surgery centers across the United States. For more information on Ryan Healthcare, go to www.ryanhealthcare.com or email their president, Mike McMahon, at mike.mcmahon, that's spelled M-C-M-A-H-A-N, at ryancompanies.com. Without further ado, let's kick off with Bob Topel and Andy Staples on the Western Open and how the majors helped forge the legend of Olympia Fields. Now, Bob, as we go into the uh, BMW Championship, uh, it has a lineage to the Western Golf Association and the Western Open. And what a proper time, I thought, to talk about the first major at Olympia Fields in, in 1920. Bob, if you could, if you want to give everybody your breakdown of whether you consider the Western Open to be a major championship, and perhaps when did it cease to be a major championship? Well, I think back in those days, it was considered to be one of the most prominent uh, terms that professionals could enter, because there was, uh, there was no Masters Championship. And the PGA was a little bit in its infancy in those days. So it was the U.S. Open and the Western Open were the, the, the important major tournaments that leading professionals wanted to play in. So I think a lot of uh, people who follow the history of golf consider the Western to have been a major up to some time, considered to be a major up to some time in the late 1930s when it was probably supplanted by the Masters in that uh, in that pecking order. But it was still a big tournament all the way up to today, you know, the, a tournament that the leading pros wanted to be in. But back in the day, it was considered one of the, uh, the one or two champions, obviously the U.S. Open, but after the U.S. Open, I think it was the Western Open. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know this, and maybe you could dive into a little bit of this, is that uh, the Western Open, or specifically the Western Golf Association, used to be a rival uh, uh, ruling body in the United States. Actually, it was in conflict in many time, for many years with the USGA. Would you jump into that? Well, the, uh, my understanding is that the Western started to represent golf in the in the Midwest and West, where so much of the focus of the USGA was in the East. So whether they were rivals or whether they just represented different constituencies is, is hard to say. But, you know, USGA-sponsored tournaments tended to be back East, and uh, Western tournaments tended to be here in what was considered the West at the time. So it was, you know, almost on an equal footing with the USGA for a number of years. Yeah, I, I like to. I guess I call it a rivalry in two cents. I felt, I feel like it's funny when we talk about when people talk about Western, as in the Western United States. Uh, back then, that really starts like in the Chicago area. Now we think of it as like San Francisco and you know maybe Idaho. Uh, so that that's really changed over time. But I guess I look at it from we had two ruling bodies, the WGA and the and the USGA, and they were sometimes in conflict. For instance. When uh, the USGA took away uh, Francis Wiemet's amateur status, the Western Golf Association still accepted it and offered him a place in the Western Amateur during that suspended time. And that's that's because there was not one ruling body at the time. So you you can think of it as a rivalry if you want, or you know they're just doing their own thing. And USGA decided he wasn't an amateur, and we're not going to we're not going to make that decision. So he can play in the events that we sponsor. So let's get into the Western Open. So um, the first major, if you will, if we're considering the Western Open, was in, at Olympia Fields in 1920. Maybe if you could dive in a little bit about the history of the Western Open and its important place at Olympia Fields. Well, as you said, that was our first important championship at, uh, at Olympia Fields, and it was contested on courses one and two, so on the Bendelow and Watson courses, because three and four were not built at the time, or not com- completely built at the time. Three was just finishing up, and uh, four was, the uh, ground even hadn't even been broken at that time. So it was contested over those two courses, and uh, it, at the end, it was one at the 72nd hole, when uh, Hall of Famer Jim Barnes, U.S. Open champion, you win Jim Barnes, missed a putt at the 18th hole, and that handed the championship to uh, Jock Hutchison, who had struggled that day, but he came in one stroke ahead. Um, a couple of years ago, I was just walking through the club, and I found this tiny little photograph that nobody knew what it was. And when you look really close, it was Stagg standing next to Hutchison and Barnes um, in the in the uh, victory ceremony for 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 Hutchison, so um, it, it's a it's the only photographic evidence we actually have of that. I've checked with newspapers and everything, but that was the first tournament at at uh, at Olympia. But it opened the floodgates, didn't it? Well, it it sure did because you know pretty soon the number four course was was completed and number three was completed around the end of 1919. So the PGA came in 1925. The clubhouse was brand new. The fourth course was only a year or so old. And uh, Walter Hagen won that event, uh, six and five over Wild Bill Melhorn. But the 
in those days, the PGA was 36 holes on the last day, 36 hole match play on the last day. And, uh, and as I said, Hagen beat Melhorn six and five, but the final 18 was played on number three. Oh, I did and not know we, that. Interesting. And we still have a little plot of land out. I actually am lucky enough to have one of those cottages. And the ninth green of number three, the outline of it is right outside my door. And you can really? see the outline of the bunker. And we've got photographs of the event where there's thousands of people crowded around the green. Andy, I think you could restore that for Bob. We're already talking about that. We've had that discussion. <laughs> I'm telling you, Bob, I think that's a must. I, I'm going to be so. Uh, this is not going to ever see the light of day unless you do that. I mean, that's well, this, how this is an interesting. Was. Sorry to, to hijack this, yeah. but, but what's funny about that green is I look at how much space they used for from course number two to course number three, and then we go through the colony and over to the range, which was course number three. And there was a lot of golf in a very small area there. And so it's really interesting to see how, how they planned that those couple of courses. It would have been, I even went it back into the neighborhood to try to find more uh, remnants, but it's all been bulldozed. But uh, no, we've talked about making a chipping green. It's just a matter of time, right, Bob? We'll work on that. Bob, it's got to happen. No debate. Okay. Um, Take your contribution. So the 1925 PGA Championship represents something that, unfortunately, Brooks uh, Kepka was not able to do this year, which was uh, Hagen winning his third in a row. And there's a great story that follows his championship at Olympia Fields. If you wouldn't mind going into it and the uh, the lost trophy story. Sure. Um, well, Hagen won as he predicted he would. Um, he, he dared the other guys by saying, who's going to finish second? And, and when he won, he got the Wanamaker Trophy, as the winner of the PGA often does. And he took the Wanamaker Trophy out with him, evidently, to celebrate in uh, Chicago Heights, the town next door. And he lost it. And he didn't know where it was, but he didn't tell anybody. And he came back in 1926 without the trophy. And they asked him, where's the trophy? And he says, well, I didn't bring it with me because I have no intention of losing. And he won again. And then in 1927, he came back to the PGA and they said, where's the trophy? And he told them the same story. I have no intention of losing. And he won again. And he had to come clean in 1928 when he didn't win. <laughs> Leo Deagle beat him. And he had to say, I don't know where it is. And it wasn't found until 1930. It turned up in a crate in the warehouse where Walter Hagen Golf Clubs Yeah, are. L.A. Young. Actually, it's not far from where I live. It is St. Petersburg. Yeah. And he stuck to his story, though. I mean, I, yeah. I guess it's plausible that someone found the trophy and sent it to his Florida offices because he was a pro at uh, Pasadena Yacht and Country Club, which wasn't far from L.A. Young, and the crate was never opened. It's extremely plausible because I believe once he found it, he returned it to the PGA. So I, I love that story because – and we talked about this a little bit before the uh, taping started that, you know, it wasn't beyond Hagen to be that boastful anyway and to assume he was going to win it. It's not out of character that they would question him. Uh, he, he was quite a character. And uh, the number of stories about him, not just here, obviously, but everywhere, um, he had a certain flair and he showed it in the way he, uh, he dealt with that particular situation. Well, he was clearly a huge fan of Olympia Fields because two years later he came back for the Western Open. Maybe if you could jump into that story. 
Well, he did come back for the Western Open, and of course he won. And in that year, the Western, which I think at that time still would have been considered a major, was contested on number one and number four. And Hagen won, set a course record on number on number one. I think he shot a 64 when par was 72. Um, and uh, it might have been even 73 at that point in time. So, you know, he, he, he liked Olympia Fields. He thought the course was uh, a wonder, as he put it. Um, he, he said he'd never seen anything like it. That was his comment in 1927. He was back for, uh, for the Western in 1933 as well, but he, didn't, he, he really didn't compete uh, yeah, that also, much yeah, that year. Definitely past his prime there. His last major really coming in 29, if you count the Open Championship as, as his last. But... One thing that a lot of people overlook, perhaps, specifically if you're counting uh, the Western as an Open in the early days there, is he won the Western Open five times. So if you consider the Western an Open in those times, we have Walter Hagen with 16 major championships, the 11 and then the five Western Opens, which technically would put him ahead of Mr. Woods. It's hard to appreciate how dominant he was um, in the professional ranks in those days. So true. As a matter of fact, I was telling somebody the other day, I, I was doing some statistics. And if you look at just players during their prime, because if you look at, you know, throughout the whole career, you really can't look at, you know, Jack Nicholas's win percentage at a U.S. Open when he played until, you know, his 50s. But if you look at in their prime, no one, including Tiger Woods, won more majors by a percentage standpoint in their prime than Walter Hagen which is uh, stunning. His numbers in the Western Open just blow the people out of the water. Uh, he won two U.S. Opens. He, he won three of the four, or what, four of the five Open Championships he played in his prime. Uh, staggering player. And I, I just love talking about him. But there's another amazing story that I like. I always like talking about the, the golden age of golf is the 1928 U.S. Open where you have uh, Bobby Jones coming to Olympia Fields literally in his prime years, in that seven-year period where it seemed like he either won or came in second, primed to win the U.S. Open, if you could walk us through the events of the 1928 U.S. Open at Olympia Fields. Well, sure. Um, Jones came to Olympia, and he was obviously the favorite. Um, But, you know, at the the end of 72, uh, Johnny Farrell caught him. So they were tied at the end of 72. And that called in those days for a 36-hole playoff. I believe it was the first 36-hole playoff, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was the first 36-hole playoff. And uh, at, the, at the 16th on the afternoon round, Jones missed a five-foot putt for par. And that gave Farrell a one-stroke lead. Now, and an interesting anecdote that goes with that is that a few years ago, a friend of mine came and said um, uh, he had his father had been a, a photographer, an amateur photographer, while he was a member in, here in the 1920s. And he was allowed on the course with his little Leica during all of these events. So I said, you yeah, know, can we see those? He said, oh, you can have them. So he gave us, you know, hundreds of negatives. And. One of them that just brought tears to my eyes was the caddies and everyone walking away while Jones is reaching down to get his ball because he missed the putt. Um, And that had to be the 16th hole that turned the match. 
Um, and so uh, Farrell held on uh, that one stroke lead he held on to for the last two holes. And uh, Grantland Rice said, I'm lucky I had to have this in front of me here. He said, there's another, never been another golf competition where the drama held its place so long and the tide of battle swung back and forth with such startling rapidity. I've never seen two golfers so physically and mentally weary and worn down after the strain of the championship play. So it was quite an event. What great words by Grantland Rice. And that was Johnny Farrell's, that was his only major. Uh, uh, long considered one of the best dressed on the PGA Tour up there with Walter Hagen. But that was his breakthrough moment going head to head with Bobby Jones and taking home the victory. But, you know, keep in mind, you know, yeah, he only won that one major, but he was on the first three Ryder Cup teams. Absolutely. No, fantastic. Um, so player. he was Absolutely. at the very top of the he was at the very top of the business. Um, sadly, he didn't make it this year in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So anyone who's listening, you want to support Johnny Farrell for the World Golf Hall of Fame. I agree. I agree 100 percent. Now. Uh, 1961 is an interesting one. We have the PGA Championship coming in. Um, Andy, I think you told me in 1961, prior to the championship, uh, that there were there was a renovate some renovation work on the championship course, the North Course. Now, yeah, the from from what I understand and a bit of history research we've done is that because the game was evolving in that time and. Preparing for, in pre- preparation for the tournament, the superintendent at the time made modifications to many, if not all, all the greenside bunkers. Uh, Willie Park would his original design, based on the aerial photography, had many of the the bunkers pulled away from the greens, with larger fronts openings of greens, very indicative of his style, where you would try to judge a ball to carry over the bunkers and run up into the greens. Well, it, he moved the bunkers into the greens. So as one of the, the major uh, identifiers when you look at the old aerials as to what's there now is that there was, there was no doubt a, a, uh, a preference placed in 1961 on the aerial game to try to toughen the course up in time for the tournament. Interesting. And those, uh, those changes, those removed or, or moved bunkers, we should say, they have stayed with the course all these years since 1961? Yeah, so pretty much everything that's out there with a few minor modifications uh, are are what was modified in in the late fifties in turn in in time for that uh, in time for that tournament. Now, Bob, the next big major that comes in after that is the two thousand three U.S. Open, and there were some rumblies in the press that Olympia Fields was past its prime that it was going to be a pushover for the new generation of golfers like Tiger Woods. Uh, maybe go through how those initial howls from the press changed once they started play on the North Course. Well, it, it's, it's not so much that before the tournament, I think, that they thought it, was, it wasn't going to be up to it. But during the tournament, there had been some, there had been some rain during the week. The USGA cut the rough back early. Um, so the greens were soft. The rough was not um, uh, what's, what you typically find at a U.S. Open, and the scores went low. E.J. Singh uh, shot a, a 63, much to Johnny Miller's consternation because he didn't like being tied. <laughs> I like that, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, later in the week, the, uh, the, the sun came out, the greens dried, the, the rough grew, and uh, the scores went north, so to speak. 
so that at the end of 72 holes, only three players finished under par. And, and of course, Jim Furyk won at eight under. Um, but I think he had a three-stroke three victory over a second place. So, you know, the, the field was over par. Um, and if you compare it to something more modern like the scores at Aaron Hills, uh, where lots of people were under par, then uh, you see how tough the, the course turned out to be. Well, I think I think one of the things that that still remain, even though those bunkers were tucked in, you know, there was a tremendous amount of of focus on that 03 Open. So there, this was when you know statistics and driving distances started to become pretty prevalent in design. So you'll notice even today there was a very uh, you know, uh, kind of adhered to that carry distance of say 280 yards 285 yards and and pinching in at the fairways and and one of the big impacts i think that that the course still defends itself are those greens uh they can get a little soft if you get some some uh some moisture but the front pins and some of these original contours that have remained through the years are still devilish little pin placements that with the right setup from T2 green. Those greens are, are I, I expect them to, to hold their own even even now that they're hitting the ball so far. Is that the genius of Willie Park? Is it the subtleties and difficulties of those greens? I think so. And I think also just the fact that, you know, a, a, a three, three and a half percent slope in 1923 was was mainly to get water off the greens, whereas when, when the putting yeah. greens were, were stimping at you know, six, seven, and eight, or nine, and now they're at thirteen. So th- there's certainly a slope uh, condition that part of uh, as, as a part of that. But but yeah, I think his greens are really what what uh, you know stands the test of time, especially at Olympia Field. But I, I don't think we should just one one point. I, I don't think we should leave the impression that the 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 bunkering though the, its their placement was. Uh, in 2003, roughly where things were in, in the late 50s, the, the bunkers were substantially changed and deepened um, by Mark Mungum before that, that tournament. And part of that was in reaction to a comment from, uh, from Jack Nicholas, who thought the bunkers needed to be redone. Interesting. What were your thoughts on that, Bob? Um, looking back. I, looking back? Yeah, I'm glad we didn't pay the bunkers from the 19, or they didn't play the bunkers from the 1950s. They were, or or the ones that uh, Jerry Barber and others played in 1961. They were much shallower bunkers, so they 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 weren't as a they weren't the challenge that uh, uh, I don't think they would have been up to the challenge of the types of players who were coming through in 2003. So since the 2003 U.S. Open, you've had two more majors. You've had the U.S. Amateur won by a slightly slimmer Bryson DeChambeau. And the 2017 Women's PGA Championship won by Daniel Kang. Bob, I know this is just thinking towards the future. Uh, what What is the hope for Olympia Fields of hosting another major championship? Um, I think we had high hopes for a PGA until they changed the, the tournament to May, where being as far north as we are might be a bit dicey um, weather-wise. Um, would we like it if the USG want, USGA wanted to come back? We sure would. If, would we like it if the WGA wants to come back? We sure would. 
And if the PGA ever wants to come in here in May or run it in August, we'd love that too. Well said. Coming into this year's uh, BMW, the Western Golf Association's BMW Championship, uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about how that affects Chick, the Chick Evans Scholarship. Because I think that's a tremendous little story within a story which connects to your history and the Western Open. Well, you know, I'm proud to be in, in a Western Golf Association director or an Evans Scholars director. And uh, here in the Midwest at most of the big clubs, but especially the Olympia, the vast majority of the members contribute to the Evans Scholars Foundation. And uh, the Evans Scholars Foundation benefits caddies. Um, caddies from, you know, not very prosperous backgrounds. You, you can't be, and it provides scholarships to send them to college and they get a full free ride. They get full tuition and, uh, and uh, they live in a separate uh, Evan Scholars house for all four years. So they're covered um, if they can show, if they can work hard as a caddy and work hard in school. They'll get that scholarship. And currently the foundation has, uh, I think we're now over a thousand students in college across the country. Um, it, and the, the colleges you can go to are some of the best in the country. So I think it's a, a wonderful charity. And if anybody's listening, um, you should. Thousands of people are listening, just so you know. Tens of thousands to be specific. <laughs> you, Bob, you with should, no confidence on the podcast, folks. <laughs> you, you should be supporting the Evans Scholars Foundation. Totally it's, agree. Uh, it's a wonderful charity. And uh, I'm, I'm so proud of some of the kids that have gone to college with us. It is a tremendous story. And, and I love the fact that the Evans does such an amazing job, not just looking toward the future and the future lives of these, of, of these young kids. Um, but also cherishing the past, not just Chick Evans, but you know the past that came before in the WGA. I just think it's a tremendous organization that's still doing good all this time later after its establishment, which really echoes how important it is today. Well, thanks. I think so, too. Absolutely. Um, let's get back into the design here, Andy. Let's bring you back into the conversation. I know. Are you still there, Andy? Yep. 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 Okay. I'm here. I'm, just I'm enjoying this conversation. So, Let's talk about the property. You're looking at the master plan of Olympia Fields. You have 36 holes of a 172-hole facility. Maybe if you could, if you wouldn't mind, without we'll, we'll dive into the south course, we'll dive into the north course, of course, but give us the most interesting aspects of that property. What stands out to you, whether it be a design element or topography or feature that sticks out from these two beautiful courses? Yeah, I would say probably the first thing that I'm going back to some of my initial impressions as I as I got to know the the, the course. You know, the, the the major natural asset is the Butterfield Creek that runs right through property. So uh, that can be uh, that can be an asset, and that can also be something that we're not too happy about when we get some a fair bit of rain. Uh, but that is probably the most impactful natural asset of of, of all of of the remaining courses. Uh, the other thing that I felt was interesting and that, you know, as I route, as I work on courses and I feel about how, you know, when you feel on a piece of property, especially if you're, you know, working 
on a on a native site, natural site that hasn't had a golf course on it before, you're always looking at ways that you would kind of navigate the property and how you walk from point to point. Uh, two things strike me about the way the courses lay out is that they're real natural to way that you would probably walk the property. Certainly the the north course is that way. Uh, but also based on the way they plan the clubhouse, you always kind of have this beacon as you go out you kind of always know where you have to go to go home. And so I think the the way the, the facilities is just kind of laid out, it's just very pleasant. And I think that's one of the things that I've, I've noticed just about everybody that I've met as a member, they just feel so much at home when they're there at the course. It's such a family. And when they're out on the golf course, they feel like it's just part of them. And I think that's really prevalent with, you know, with the way the courses are laid out. Yeah. So there's always that pull to the compass, right? It is. It that's, definitely I, is. That's a really cool aspect. I, I, before you said that before, I had never even considered it when I played there. Unbelievable. Yep. Go yep. on, uh, Andy. What, what are interesting parts of this property and perhaps holes stick out to you on both courses? Yeah. So I probably spent a, a lot more time really digesting and, and breaking apart the South course because we're really right now we're, we're, into a master plan of the south course we haven't gotten to the north course yet part of that is uh we want to do the south course first and then wait for the bmw to come through and then then focus our energies on on the north uh, but uh, i've already referenced probably the most exciting part of the south course plan is this this uh kind of sixth hole uh kind of re- uh, revitalization it's com- you know the green's completely surrounded in trees right now it's uh uh, a lot of some bunkering that doesn't necessarily fit from original uh, original design. Uh, so to me, the sixth hole is something that uh, really stands out. Uh, so the other thing too is as as I've gotten to know the the historical lineage and understood how not only uh, Bendel and Watson and how they put their uh, input, but how Willie Park Jr. Uh, started to put his input in is just this idea that. There's so much more. The, the work that's been done over the years has just kind of gotten away from those types of quirk and and just feeling of, of, of just that uniqueness of what I thought was the first and second courses. And so, you know, I was I was definitely struck by the opportunity that the South Course had. It's a really cool site. Uh, like I said, it has some drainage issues. We're certainly going to be addressing the more technical aspects of drainage and trees and turf health and those things. But uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to make the bunkers better. We're going to, we're going to make them a little bit more historically relevant. And, uh, so I think the other major kind of headline for the South course, it was just the opportunity that's out there. Cause, uh, it's really kind of thought of as the second course. Everyone comes to the Olympia fields wanting to play the championship course. But to me, the site of the South is every, every bit as interesting in, in its own way, uh, as the North course. Andy, when you say making it uh, historically relevant, how walk me through that process, or forget the process. Walk me through the thinking. The South Course has had a lot of hands on it, right? Uh, you know, yes. Bendelow, Watson, Park, uh, maybe Langford came in at some point and just you know gave thoughts. How do you how do you focus that all those different design aspects to bring back? a historically relevant course. Yes. Well, we, we still have to get this plan approved and this, it hasn't gone in front of the membership yet. So I got to make sure that there's still a process in place here. But from my standpoint, the exciting part of it is this, the fact that you're able to pull from different 
different influences and actually be pretty creative with it. And I, if you were able to see some of these photographs of these little bunkers, you know, the creative aspects of just bringing something back, if you will, uh, means that there really aren't any rules. It's a lot uh, more I'd diverse to work. A lot out. more diverse. And I would say a lot more creative, uh, creative freedom. Whereas, you know, we've got a pretty good record, 1928, uh, open, uh, brochure for the tournament. We have all the photographs for what that course looked like. So we have, we have a fair bit of, of pretty strong record. We have the same for the South, but not nearly as comprehensive. But uh, I think there's a lot more creative freedom uh, able to be had on the South course. Uh, on top of the fact that if we just do the technical things right, you know, increase the drainage, upgrade some some of the turf, get rid of some trees, I think you're going to open up a piece of property that that just feels uh, the way it's meant to feel. So uh, that's the way I'd probably answer that. Andy, I think you'd, you'd have a, as good a perspective on this as anybody through your diverse work in both uh, building, you know, courses from scratch, restoration, renovation, etc. But what, what opportunities do a historical restoration renovation give a club of Olympia field stature? Like what a, what are the what aspects? I don't know if you want to say reinvigorate membership or help uh, Bob celebrate its history. Come out and maybe some of your past projects, and maybe after that, Bobby, maybe you can uh, go into this a little bit. Yeah, I think I think one of the big things is we we are very in tune with the the member uh, uh, satisfaction and 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 just appreciation of the club. So there's some some technical aspects that are really quite, I don't want to call them easy, they're not easy to do, they cost money, but you know it's really pretty straightforward. We make the golf course drain better, which means they're going to play the golf course more often. You know, those are the types of things that I know, uh, you know, are, we're, going to, we're going to make you know, some serious strides on the South. So really, I think to me, the, the, the kind of the creative aspects I talk about, the eye candy, if you will, is, is really kind of taking your your level of IQ and going up a few clicks of golf architecture IQ, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we do the, the, the stuff that needs to be done, more technical, but then allow this course to be a little bit more of, a, of an education into golf architecture, uh, I've been really, really pleased with the, the response I've gotten from the members I've gotten to know at Olympia Fields, that they're just very interested in in the architecture. Uh, maybe that's not across the board, but I, I feel the, a, a, a hunger for more of that. And I think that's, uh, to me, what I what I love about what we did up in Detroit and Meadowbrook and what I feel the same thing is happening at Olympia is that we have an opportunity to use this golf course, use this project uh, to to educate them on golf architecture and why golf ar- great golf architecture matters. Bob, to you, um, when you're preserving something like Andy's, you know, trying to do with a restoration, uh, for someone who's on the foundation who is uh, critically interested in the history of Olympia Fields, what does that mean to you? Well, I, I, you know, I'm an academic, so I immediately became fascinated with the place, and I was really shocked at the amount of stuff that they still had. You know, we had the minutes all the way back to the teens you know, like 1919, um, we had all sorts of memorabilia that were in the archives, not very well organized in the archives, but they were there. And so it became sort of a labor of love for me on the side. 
Um, you know, I, I want to point out one of the historical things that that I got to give credit to Andy for doing, and that is in, in his plan for the South Course on the third hole. It's an uphill par three, and on the old third course, we lost two uphill par threes into a ridge, and he took the photographs of number seven and number 10 on the third course. And he's using that as kind of a template. You're almost going to be able to see those old holes in what he's recreating on the South course. And I thought that was something that was pretty cool. And we wouldn't be able to do it if we didn't have all the records that we have of, of the old courses. So I give, I give Andy a lot of credit for having the courage to do that kind of thing. I love that, Bob. Um, from your foundation standpoint, I know you don't touch the golf course, but how important it is to say the foundation of the historical aspect of Olympia Fields is it to cherish the history when it comes to a the restoration work? Um, well, the, the membership here really does cherish the history of the place. Um, it's a little bit like what Andy said about the architecture. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of people really care quite a bit. And they love their two golf courses. I mean, one of the treats um, that we have around here is you walk up with your friends and say, which one do you want to play? And you, you can't say that one is more fun or preferred to the other. We divide our time pretty much evenly between the two, at least in the group of people that, that I play with. Um, in, insofar as the foundation goes, you know, we are devoted to not just the physical structure, the historic and, and being historically consistent on the physical structure, but um, we're also another part of our mission is to uh, sustain the history of the place and um, obtain and display um, historical items that are relevant to the great events that have occurred here. So we don't just paint buildings and, 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 and renovate interiors and things like that. Part of what we do is we go out and we try to get the stuff yeah. that people can see and displays for, so that when guests come or people who are interested in just the history of Chicago come, we can take them through and show them a lot of the things that have happened in this club. Yeah, would you say that the, in that respect, though, the courses are a mirror to that history as those great events happened on those links? Oh yeah, the the, uh, the they are a mirror to that. The a, a lot of the great things that happened in the 1920s, the 1930s, and, and later happened on those golf courses. So you know the the clubhouse obviously wouldn't be here without the golf courses. Um, but the, the 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 clubhouse is is where the social life of the club has always occurred. But it's also so intimately connected to those golf courses and. As I said, much of what we do with the foundation has to do with preserving the history of events that have occurred on those golf courses. Yeah, exactly. Um, Andy, you know, going back to you, you've obviously had the time to look over the routing and walk the course, both the north and the south. If you could, what does it say about the architects as you walk those courses? I mean, do you get a, a feel for who they were how the, and how they routed those courses? as you walk or play over those 36 holes? Yeah, I think, well, I've already mentioned about the sixth hole on the south course and, and the fact that it plays in and around and over Butterfield Creek. You know, you have to go to the north course and talk about the fact that that 
is has been and still is the championship golf course. So, you know, there's a there's a real f- numerous famous shots of of the third the third approach as you drive up to a crest and down a hill, you go across Butterfield Creek up to just the one of the strongest approaches up to a a perched green where it kind of just you know you're you're dancing across these points to points. Uh, the 14th hole is another one that. You start on a prominent point, one of the best points between 13 and 14. You can see the entire property. You 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 drive down the hill along along Butterfield Creek and then back up to a point, again, a, just one of the strongest approaches that you can imagine in championship golf. And so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I think that's what makes Olympia Fields so unique as a member is because you do have these, you know, very different golf courses and that offer a very different. Uh, you know different styles of golf and and so to me from my standpoint it's just it's just such a pleasure to get to know that and see how park especially willie park i mean the fact that this is you know everyone always wants to know what you know what courses did willie park do what's he known for and you know most americans you know aren't, aren't fortunate to get over to see sunningdale which i agree with bob this site on the north course is very very close uh can be done a little bit more from a a visual standpoint to be a little bit more like Sunningdale, but it's very similar. Uh, and then they have Maidstone is known as Willie Park's uh, kind of flagship place uh, design here in the United States, but that was really more of a renovation. I, I'd be hard pressed to find a, a stronger championship uh, design from Willie Park than the Olympia Fields North Course. So to me, that's what makes uh, you know his course so so lasting and 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 a real legacy to to championship golf. Andy, when we get when we talk about Willie Park Jr., you know, a lot of people are familiar with the aspects of Donald Ross's design. Certainly, CB McDonald and Seth Rayner because they're so uh, unique uh, and and very um, boy, I'd say repeatable. But man, uh, I think uh, Anthony Piapi would shoot me for saying that. Uh, the template <laughs> nature of their design is very right. um, unique and memorable. Let's just say memorable. That's a better way. Sorry, Tony. What is it about Willie Park's design? What did he do at those courses at Olympia Fields that stands out to you as, I hate to use the word signature, but I'm going to anyway. What's a signature of a Willie Park design? What did he do so well that stands out? Well, Bob alluded to some of that on the, on the south course of the 10th green. You know, he had a way of, of shaping his green complexes with these fairly strong shoulder points in the back corners, the back left and right corners, and sometimes split with a spine to the middle and another bump in the middle. Uh, that got a little bit repeated, uh, but, you know, especially in the United States. So that's where when you can come up to a green and you see that, you, you feel it right away. The fourth green on the north course, still very, real, you know, very strong uh, feeling. The 11th hole uh, also. Um so you have to go to Willie Park Jr.'s uh, green, green design because you know he came to the United States as a, as an Open champion and and a and a, a, a force in, uh, you know as a player and he used his strength as as a putter as a good putter, you know the saying of any you know if you're uh, a good putter you're you're a good match. Yeah, uh, a man so a man who can putt is a match for anyone. Is a match for anyone. There you go. Um, Kind of botched that one, didn't That's I? That's all right. I'm uh, I'm a Musabra uh, historian. <laughs> I am all into Musabra, so it comes to Willie Park. I know the history of that man quite yeah. well and his family. Yeah. 
wouldn't try to challenge you on that. <laughs> That's uh, so, you get me so on I the design part, so we're fine. <laughs> so the greens, you have to go. You have to go to the greens. Uh, and 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 the the one thing I did learn when I went to see more of his work in the United or the the UK over in in England is uh, the the variety. He he certainly was able to do more things that wasn't just a a simple tilt from back to front and. You know, I always go back to this course called Hunter Huntercombe outside of London. I mean, that is that is the absolute, just uh, the perfect example of what I would say, what I feel is as a Willie Park Jr. design. Uh, the only other thing I would say from a uh, from a uh, maybe a, what he's lacking. You know, one of the things that I would say about the North Course is the the landing areas and the actual contour of the landing areas and a lot of this is is indicative to the site that he worked with so he wasn't moving a huge amount of material to build the course but didn't his, have machinery right we're using right, horse and right. plow through most of that yeah so if you the fourth hole is this kind of slight dogleg to the right on the north and it plays up and over some of the most you know natural rolling rumpled land and that's kind of a unique part you know the 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 12th hole is another one that kind of rolls up and around. But, you know, there's a number of fairways that are fairly mundane and fairly flat. So I think he he was really paying more attention to his approaches. Obviously, his routing was very point-to-point, kind of perching and dancing around the high points, then going down and then coming back up. Uh, but, you know, the 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 fairways and the landing areas, I'm, and I'm really interested to see how the BMW, <laughs> the contestants have, you know, hit the ball. Uh, this next week that, you know, we designed golf courses for a lot of years around 285 to 300-yard turn points, and that's very much the way uh, the the north course is designed. Well, some of these guys are hitting it, as you know, just a mile. And so now you're going to hit them into some spots that really the only way you can challenge those guys once they land that ball is to have them uh, give them an uneven lie and some sort of uncomfortable feeling to a green, to an approach. And I, I'd say that to me, is a huge opportunity to try to do some more of that on the North Course. You know, Andy, I like that. Because um, a lot of people try to, whether this is right or wrong, I, I don't like it, but I don't like the idea of just adding bunkers to golf courses because it's a PGA Tour event. I like the idea of challenging with contour and giving them just a, a – all you need for a PGA Tour player a lot of times is you just need to give them a seed of doubt. You know what I mean? You just need to challenge them a little bit. Obviously, most of these guys are pulling off the shot, but if you get them to question the club they have in the hand, the stance they have, or how it's going to react off a contour is really the only way to challenge them with the technology we have today. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, that's that's absolutely fair. But you know, when you've got you know guys hitting it 380 yards and you've got a wedge in your hand all day, the 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 impact of that uneven lion yeah. And the ability to give them that doubt is 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 <laughs> still yeah uh, still minuscule yeah. compared to you and I playing golf tomorrow right yeah yeah like. so Bob and I have been been so 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 until something is done with clubs or balls uh, length has to be part of the equation Bob and I have been we've been messing around it's kind of uh, just between the two of us about a composite course between the two the two uh, the two courses to get something to get something that has the length that we might need for a for a bigger tournament but um you know no plans just fun we've been messing around with it that's one of the things about the north course is that they have pushed those tees back as far as they really can and 
and now without you know without a significant amount of tree cover or a tree in the right spot you know they're just going over the top of everything and you know so i just come back to you and say yeah i agree 100 percent about seed of doubt and contour and those types of things uh, but there again you know we don't know if we're going to get another major that's up to to the people much uh, higher up than us so we have to do something for the membership uh, still continue to test the best players as best we can. They have a great collegiate tournament. University of Illinois and Coach Small come there every year. Uh, hopefully that continues. Uh, so to me, those are the types of things we want to want to improve it for the members and continue to understand that championship golf is part of our lineage, but also know that there's going to be a balance. There's only so much we can do. You know, on that same point, Andy, uh, regarding to design around the PGA Tour, what are what are the difficulties of restoring, designing, not specifically to Olympia Fields, mind you, North Course? I'm just, in general, as an architect, I think you'll have great insight on this. What are the challenges you have when you have this great historic course? We have, let's just say, the governing bodies maybe in a pause mode trying to figure out how to handle the distance debate. What are the challenges as an architect uh, when you are on an older course that is basically maxed out and still try to deliver, you know, a championship test. Well, I think you just kind of said it. I mean, that, that that's a, a, a conflict that is almost impossible to solve. And I'd say probably the largest, uh, you know, barrier to any of that and challenge is just getting over the fact that you just can't, you can't do anything about it. You know, there's only so much land on a golf course. So, you know, we as architects tend to just burden ourselves, our, our own selves about how long can we make this golf course step? Where can we get some more length? And oh, by the way, we want to put forward tees out there for the, uh, you know, for the beginner golfer and the swing speed analysis of, of 65 miles an hour or whatever you want to do. Uh, so the biggest challenge is just to forget about them. Let's not worry about them. That, that it's, it's, it's almost as if it's a, uh, it, you're trying to, to win a battle that just is impossible and, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, imagine what, you know, you go down to any sport. We have these conversations all day long. What, How long would baseball diamonds be if they were able to use aluminum bats and, and those types of things that, you know, they wouldn't keep making, they're not going to keep making baseball parks bigger. So, you know, at the end of the day, why, why are our golf courses keep getting bigger and, and the expense and all those things just keep going up? So, you know, to me, the challenge is just to focus on the club player and focus on your market. Yeah. And focus on the guys that are paying your bills. You know what? To that point, um, Olympia Fields, I guarantee, is a challenge for every member of that club. Am I fair to say that, Bob? I mean, there's nobody saying, you know, maybe the young kids. Maybe there's some high school and college kids that can pelt the ball out there 350 yards. But for the most part, I'm guessing 99.9% of your members still find the north course and the south course quite the challenge. They are quite the challenge. And... uh you know the the difference between them goes back to the 1920s, where they referred to the North Course as it was number four in those days as the Beast. Yes, and that that golf course will just beat you up. You know, you you have a little bit of a bad outcome, and turn, course turns around and says, "Oh, you didn't like that? Well, how about this?" And uh, you think you're doing fine. That happened to me a couple weeks ago. I had a nice front nine, and I got. My butt kicked on the back nine. The uh, it's an it, evil it's game, brutal, Bob. It's but it's <laughs> but it's but that's why you keep coming. So back. true. As we've all said as golfers, that's why we keep coming back. 
And that's why you keep coming back to that north course. You know, I'm going to beat it one day. I'll tell you, uh, Bob, I've got a little bit of history for you. And I just thought of it now. I, I, I don't know. I posted an article on Twitter or on the private Facebook page. I don't, it might have been six months ago. It might have been a year. I lose track of time. But uh, you may know of this. In the 1920s, uh, Chick Evans had an AP spot where he wrote articles about golf. And uh, they were facing the similar issues, Andy, where we're talking about uh, this is prior to rolling the ball back in 1931. And they were talking about golf courses being um, no longer a challenge because the small heavy ball was going so far. And Chick Evans, I don't know if you know this, Bob, but he wrote an article about designating two golf courses in the whole United States for USGA events. And one of them on the West Coast, he called it the West Coast, by the way, not me, was Olympia Fields. And the second one he suggested was Shinnecock. And the idea was there would be only two golf courses for the United States Golf Association in perpetuity. And it would be Olympia Fields and Shinnecock. And the idea was every other year, so the amateur would be played at Olympia Fields in 1920. And in 1920 at Shinnecock, they'd play the U.S. Open. And then the very next year, they would reverse the two. So you'd be playing the U.S. Open at Shinnecock and the U.S. Amateur at Olympia Fields. So... I found that to be very interesting because it's a, it's an aspect of perhaps where we end up if nobody does anything, Andy, is we end up building two monster courses that do not exist today, which I don't think we're going to do. I do think we'll find a solution to the golf ball. Uh, but that's kind of where the history of Olympic feels from that being a monster, Bob, goes all the way back to Chick Evans saying the ultimate test in the Midwest for golf is Olympia Fields? I don't. Were you aware of that that AP article? If not, I'll send it to you. I was. I, I'd love to have that article. I agree with Chick, who is an honorary member here, and we accept. <laughs> you heard that here, USGA. They were just on the podcast last week. Actually, was that this week? No, it was last week. Uh, I'll let them know you said that that you are willing to be one of the two courses that'll hold the U.S. Open and U.S. Amateur in perpetuity. Done. I think. I think we yeah. can make that happen. Okay. I feel pretty good about it. Um, Andy, back to design here. Let's look at the South Course. So you've looked pretty strong at a restoration model for the South Course. Can you give us some of the highlights of what Andy Staples might do if given the opportunity to restore the South Course at Olympia Fields? Yeah, well, there's a lot There's a lot going on there, I'd, and I'd stop. I'd stop short of calling it a restoration, but it's uh, there's there's really no, from from my standpoint, a restoration is a pretty strict adherence to original plans and, and ideas. And, it, and there's some things out there. For example, the the current 13th and 14th hole on the on the south course uh, now has a an irrigation reservoir around that that, uh, that those two holes. That so it's completely different than what it was when it first first built. Uh, but I do know that the, there was. The objectives were uh, to to think about it, your your member. So from a drainage and and turf health standpoint, uh, and then there was a couple of, of holes that are that are continued, uh, you know, discussion, either within membership or with ratings and those types of things. The third hole, Bob already kind of alluded to, uh, a little uh, uphill, the strongest, a little bit. It's not a little hole. It's uphill hole, par three. Uh, that I feel can be way better and way more indicative of what would be, uh, you know, original, if you will. But that's an entirely new hole that someone put in. The, the original Tom Bendelow uh, third hole was down in the low area in the swamp, and it 
and it went underwater every year. So they had to move that green up into the hill. Uh, so, so that's one of the big pieces we're working on. And then back to the 13th and 14th holes. Uh, so the original green on the 13th hole still plays the same. It's still built. They didn't change any of the green. So the, the angle is still to receive a, a shot, which is essentially in the middle of the, the irrigation lake. So the, the entire entire hole is changed based on how the, the approach into that green currently exists. So we're, we're going to work on getting the flow from, you know, 12, 13, and 14, uh, just a lot more, uh, uh, you know, play in less time. It's just a real, it's a real struggle to get people through there. So uh, that's one big, that's another big uh, point of our plan. Uh, mentioned the sixth hole. I sure hope that the sixth hole continues to be more and more talked about as one of the best holes, not only in uh, uh, the Chicago land area, but throughout the Midwest. It, it's going to rival, in my mind, the volcano hole at Franklin Hills, I Love think. It. Yes. Uh, so it's it's right there. It's ready to be done. Uh, I think it's going to be better because you've got a lot more natural uh, uh, you know, assets. You've got Butterfield Creek and they've got their own, they have their Hell's Kitchen on the right side of the sixth green. You hit it to the right, you go down into Hell's Kitchen. So there's some serious history on this on this hole. Uh, so that's going to be cool. Uh, and then I, I think finally the thing that I'm I'm really interested in is, you know, we talk a lot about teeing equity and getting people into the game and keeping them in the game. Uh, I want to do that through a variety of teeing grounds without without plastering tees all over the all over the South Course, uh, there's a real opportunity to just make the South Course uh, the place that that the beginners and the, the people that want to start uh, start in the game uh, will 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 have a lot better uh, time around. Because, like yeah. I said, it's got all but still challenging the members at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talk a little about about long views. Uh, can you give me an idea of of the long views that you'd like to restore on the South Course? All right. Well, yeah, good. So, you know, when you get on a golf course, most everybody scans, right? They scan horizontally, you know, across the property. And, and as you scan, your your eyes get disrupted for different things. And, you know, part of a, of a good design helps direct where that scanning starts and stops. And, and, and you show off the, the entire, uh, you know, focus of your design. And, and there's a spot when you get up to the putting green on the south near the south course, uh, and that where the the eighth hole is, uh, there's a spot there that you can basically look over the entire valley of the the first part of the south course, and it's it's blocked. It you scan and you see a bunch of a uh, bunch of trees. There's a halfway house there, and so to me, long views are as you get up onto a, a prominent point, you get a sense of of kind of direction of where you want to go, and then awe and wonder about the piece of property. And I think. Uh, the eighth hole is one of those because it's right out front of the clubhouse. As we walk up to the the third hole, there's an opportunity to be up on that prominent point to see different places. The sixth hole, I want to stand on the sixth hole and be able to see almost in 360 degrees to see all. You can see just about the entire property from that point without trees. Um, you know, and then just to be able to to, to selectively know that um, you're always going back to the clubhouse. And so anytime that I have an opportunity to kind of give you a glimpse of where that clubhouse is and where, where you're going, uh, those are the long views that I try to try to instill on certain points of the course. I love that. Uh, let's go right into the north before we finish up here a little bit. So 
I'm going to change this up on you right now a little bit. I'm not going to ask uh-huh. you to put on your Andy Staples architect hat. I'm going to ask you to think of the North Course today as Willie Park might look upon it. So Willie Park visits Olympia Fields in 2020, hopefully doesn't get COVID. And he's overlooking <laughs> the course that he designed. And, and let's overlook the distance change and new tee boxes that have accompanied technology. Um, what, from a, a green standpoint, how many of those greens would he recognize as his own? That's a good question. I'd like to hear what Bob thinks about that. My understanding is there's, there's 17 original green pads uh, with a modification to one of those green pads. Uh, is that I right, th- Bob? Do you th- I think that's right. The, the only hole that was replaced was six. So I think there are 17 of Park's original greens out there, though on three and you know, maybe somewhere else, a couple of spots might have been flattened a bit to create hole locations for the, for the open in 2003. Um, and in some places, I think I, you'll, you'll, this is one you'll know better than me, Andy. It looks like, say, on the, the back right of the ninth green, that there was more to the green pad back there that's been lost over time and could be brought back. With, with, and it's flat enough to have additional pin placements back there. Yeah. But, but basically, yeah. we're, paying, we're playing those greens that Park created. Um, another aspect of that that, that uh, Andy talked about is that originally he laid out the greens to be a bit smaller than they are but then because he's such a, a great putter and he thought putting should be a big thing he came and made the green pads a lot bigger than his original design yeah, yeah so I think one of the things like I talked a little bit about these shoulders and these these slopes and areas around the greens outside the green surface itself I wonder if Park would recognize some of those back slopes I think it would be certainly a, a like any any type of uh, exercise with an original architect. One of the great things about these podcasts and the new new uh, technology is documenting people's discussion around design. And I think I think there was going to be some things on those green pads that he would he would immediately recognize as being changed. And I think he'd stand on them. I think for the most part the greens are are sloped very similar. They've never been completely rebuilt. They've only been modified, so they're very close. I think the the biggest change, if anything, has happened around the greens when the bunkers were sh- shifted around and deepened, and some of the slopes are on the backsides that that really create some of those fall offs. You know, if you do some short grass, you're either on the green or off the green. Or if you didn't get up quite high enough into the the front part of the green pad, it would roll back down almost uh, you know 20, 30, 10, 20, 30 yards away from the the green. You know, those types of things. I think. Are, are are right there, ready to be restored. Let's say from T to green, Andy. How how might he look at the strategic elements of the North Course today? What might he do to perhaps bring back, if you will, or revitalize the strategy of the course from Park's perspective? Yeah. You probably know him as good as any architect. Yeah. Well, so it's it's really apples and oranges. I mean, I just cannot imagine he would not recognize the game. I mean, the, the many of the bunkers that he designed were, you know, 180 to 220 yards off the tee. Absolutely. He had an awesome, awesome, cool, big sand bunker on the right side of the first hole of the North course with a big Island in the middle of it. Uh, 
you know, and I'm assuming he put that there in part to, uh, you know, to, to direct play and, and be a challenge. Well, there, it's not even play for most most members these days. Uh, and then you go up to the first hole, there's some cross bunkering, that pinch in the fairway. You know, guys on the tour are going to be almost reaching that green, if not reaching that green in two. So these cross bunkers that set up, you know, go for it or don't go for it, play up to get, you know, up to them, go over it to get up to the landing area, that's, that's gone and, and that doesn't even exist anymore. So the real challenge from, from our standpoint is to try to figure out how much of that original intent can we bring back, if at all. And then, oh, by the way, let's ignore the tour for a second. How do we in, instill some of this flavor and, and strategy for the club member? And I think we've got, we've got plenty of opportunity to do that. Yeah, I'm not even a member of Olympia Fields, and I get goosebumps when I hear you talk about both courses, really, and the opportunity to, again, kind of uh, reveal or cherish its history through the ground the game was played on. Uh, it must be a tremendous honor for you. Am I wrong? Incredible. Incredible. It's next level stuff for me. Goosebumps, I can't, right? has to I be. be I, I, I pinch myself. It's awesome. I'm, I am so honored to be a part of it. And it sounds corny, but you know, it certainly put me on a different level of understanding of, of, of professional. And I just, to me, it's, it, I just can't wait to get going. So it's, uh, COVID be damned. We're going to, we're going to do right. something on the South course here pretty soon and, and hopefully keep going on the North course. Yeah. Andy. And, and I think Bob too, I mean, before we jump into Bob's final, final comments on the, the members, but I, I think what I love about, you know, doing this podcast amongst learning with everybody else who's listening is I just love hearing the passion that both of you have for Olympia Fields and where you're trying to take it. By actually, you're where you're trying to take it while looking through the looking glass back into history. Um, I I just want to say you know before we get to the end because we're not there. It's such an honor to talk to you two that are are just so enthusiastic about work at Olympia Fields. Well, the history can be a good thing and it can be a, a, a hindrance as well. So it's 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 hard to – we don't always want to be looking back. we got to look forward. That's what that's where the world's moving. It's where Olympia Field's got to be, uh, be headed. But uh, it certainly is cool to put it in the context of nothing else. Uh, do not repeat the same mistakes they made 100 years ago. Sure. You know, Bob, um, let, let's go into the members. You're a member of Olympia Fields. You've been there for a while. You have one of the cottages, obviously. It's a little bit more than 600 feet, I understand. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about what makes the course, both courses, uh, memorable for the members of Olympia Fields? What stands out? Well, I think because they're they're both they're different, but similar in the sense that they're they're very challenging. I mentioned a while ago that when you walk out with your friends, you you know if if you're just walking up to the clubhouse and you don't have your time yet, you say, well, which course do you want to play? And we have the pleasure of choosing that way. And it's not as if, you know, I'm always going to try to play the, the north course and I only play the south course if I have to. You know, it, it's a coin flip which way you're going to go. I, I sometimes tell people that if they ask people which of the two courses, if you had one round left in your life, which would you play? And, you know, probably... 40% would say south, 60% would say north, but half of the guys who say north are lying. 
they don't want to get beat up in their last round. And and it's not and the South Course will beat you up. You know, the slope's pretty doggone high. It's 141 from the blue tees, I think. And um it, you know, it's a championship caliber course. And that's where we're lucky. We have two of the top ten courses in Illinois. Um, and that's just a wonderful treat to have when you're a member. Ben Hogan once said that the answers were all in the dirt. Uh, I understand that some of your members are actually in the dirt at the North course at Olympia fields. Can you maybe go into that a little bit? Well, at 14, the 14th, what, what, what Rand Morissette referred to as the all universe 14th is a location where the ashes of generations of members have been scattered both literally and figuratively. So, um, you know, and I know that among our members and staff now, they've chosen their spot out on 14. That's where they want to be. So it, it's it's a place that uh, people are very proud to belong to, and it's a place where they want to remain um, longer than you might expect. Yeah, that's touching, Bob. I'm I, uh, trying to catch it, catch my breath here a little bit. That that people are attached so much to the course that there's a specific spot, specifically the all universe 14 where essentially in perpetuity, they want to be part of the course. Our pro wants to be out there, Bob and Andy. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think people have learned a lot about the history Olympia fields and perhaps uh, where it's going in the future. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the talking cause history podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really. Thanks a lot, Connor. Playing down the 18th hole of the North Course, heading towards that iconic clock tower where 105 years have passed, you realize that you are walking in the footsteps of the golfing gods. Those gods of old shaped the legend of Charles Beach's golfing temple of Chicago. Some temples were built for the gods. Some temples were built to worship the gods. This temple was made for us. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Mm-hmm.